Thank you for listening. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit the Hay Player at hayfestival.org. Aha. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Hay Festival 2018. Lovely to see you all. Um, this uh, event is presented in association with the University of Cambridge. Um, egg freezing is an increasingly popular reproductive technology that offers the potential of staying fertile later in life. Yet while it opens up possibilities of having children at a later age, the promise of rewinding the biological clock also encourages younger, presumably fertile women to undergo infertility treatment. Introduce my speaker here. Um, Dr. Lucy van der Veel is a research associate at the Reproductive Sociology Research Group at the University of Cambridge. She will discuss how egg freezing profoundly shifts our understanding of what it means to be fertile and to age. If we could, I know she's already here, but let's welcome Lucy to the stage and give her a round of applause. Thank you very much. Thank you all very much for coming. It's a real pleasure to be here, especially at such a beautiful stage with all these beautiful people. So thank you for making the time, for waking up early tomorrow, this morning on a Sunday. And, um, and to join me in talking about fertility today. So I'd like to begin by thinking about what it means to be fertile, what it means to be infertile, whether you have children or not. Um, and I think fertility is interesting because it's about all of us, all of our reproductive bodies and our non-reproductive bodies. So let's begin by taking a moment to ourselves and Think about your own fertility. Maybe you can feel into your body and into yourself and think about, are you fertile at the moment? Or are you infertile? Or perhaps you don't know. And what made it so? Is this an assumption or is it an experience? Is it informed by your friends or by the media or by the sensations that you feel in your body? So we can, we can return to that question later on. And has your feeling of fertility changed over your lifetime? Perhaps you were fertile in the past, but you no longer are. Or perhaps you're not fertile, but you might be one day. Because I work in sociology, I would like to think about fertility as something that's not only an individual concern or only a medical matter, but also something that's a social phenomenon and a structural, cultural phenomenon. And our understanding and our lived experience of it is changing all the time as our societies change and the technologies that are available to us change. So um, in my research group in Cambridge, we look at the relation between technological change and social change. And particularly technologies like IVF, um, which emerged 40 years ago with uh, the birth of Louise Brown, who's turning 40 this summer, have had a big impact on our understanding of reproduction and fertility. But today I'm going to talk about egg freezing. So egg freezing follows um, a really exciting and um, politicized century. The 20th century saw radical changes in the manipulation of reproduction, as you all know. Um, struggles initially focused on avoiding pregnancy and birth with the introduction of the contraceptive pill, the decriminalization and the legalization of abortion in different areas. And as we know, it's all ongoing and we're, um, I'm very happy about what happened in Ireland last week, although we have to remember it's of course only 12 weeks rather than the 24. That's the case in this country. But apart from avoiding childbirth and um, pregnancy, the achievement of conception and birth has also changed a lot with the introduction of IVF, but also egg donation. So the donation of eggs between women, sperm donation, gestational surrogacy across the world. So now in the 21st century, these two developments of avoiding conception and uh, achieving conception are coming together in egg freezing because egg freezing is both a reproductive and a non-reproductive technology. Oh, let's turn on my presentation. <laughs> Great. So it represents both an active choice not to have children at present, and it is a commitment to future um, potentially assisted reproduction. And what I find interesting about egg freezing, it's not just that it's another new technology, but that it represents a much more fundamental shift about what it means to be fertile and what it means to age. Um, it is something that isn't just a technology for people who find that they can't have children, but it appeals to a much broader group of women. Um, it's not necessarily the infertile group, but particularly fertile women are being addressed as being potential candidates for infertility treatment. And it's also not necessarily the women who want to have children, 
but uh, the women who don't want to have children are addressed as well. So perhaps they may want to have children in the future, so they could already undergo treatment. So these characteristics have made it an attractive, um, an attractive treatment for uh, a lot of clinics to look into because it offers a, a much broader target group of women that they could interact with. So today I'll um, focus on some of these developments in relation to egg freezing and their politicization. But it may be helpful to first talk about what egg freezing is, in case you don't know. So this is a very simplified version of the female reproductive system, um, as we are all familiar with, and the eggs are in the ovaries. Now this is exciting because um, when you ovulate, or when someone ovulates, um, the follicles in the ovaries swell up with liquid, and the eggs inside that follicle uh, become maturated, so they become mature, and they can uh, potentially lead to fertilization. So when the follicles swell up, they don't actually go, uh, they, they burst, and then the egg comes out, but it doesn't directly go into the fallopian tubes. The egg goes into the abdominal cavity, and from there you see these fallopian uh, tubes, they have fingers, they're called fimbriae, and they guide the egg into the fallopian tubes. So here we see the first time, just a couple of years ago, the first um, observation in the body of ovulation. You, so you see this follicle swelling up and then a bit of liquid coming out that contains the egg. And then it kind of pops out. So um, in women of reproductive age, this can happen about each month. And then here's a CGI version. So then that egg is taken up by the fimbriae. Now what's exciting about this is here, you see these fimbriae, these fingers of the fallopian tubes. And when ovulation happens, they become engorged, they become erect, so they get more blood flow. And then with the rhythm of the heartbeat, they guide the egg into the fallopian <laughs> tubes. So you see here, they've become much bigger and the eggs come into them. Now if you freeze your eggs, this is not the way in which uh, your eggs are going to be fertilized. Instead, women um, usually inject themselves with uh, hormones, usually between one and two weeks. And so every day you have to inject yourself in your tummy. And what happens is these hormones stimulate the ovaries to mature a lot of eggs at the same time. And that's when you get a lot of um, follicles becoming large and filled up with fluid and eggs in them. And after that, you need an operation where there is a probe that goes into the vagina, into the abdominal cavity, and into the ovaries to suck out the eggs of each individual follicle. So it's quite um, an intensive procedure, although a lot of women have said that, it's, uh, that it was quite doable, but it is, it is not as easy as, say, sperm donation. So what, when we think about fertility and infertility, if this is a lifespan, it's a very simplified idea of um, you start off, you're born as a child, and you, know, you cannot conceive at that point. But there comes a point for people who have some fertility in their lives that they um, become fertile, and then at some point, if they live long enough, they are no longer fertile. Now, what happens with egg freezing is that in the middle of that adulthood stage in which you are... Uh, presumed to be fertile, there is a possibility of already undergoing infertility treatment and already treating the potential infertility that may come later in life. But on the other hand, with the other yellow arrow, if you are at a stage in your life in which you have had age-related infertility, if you've frozen your eggs, there's still some way of embodying a more distributed sense of being fertile, of having eggs somewhere else that you cannot just use to have a pregnancy with, but also to conceive with, with a chosen partner or a donor. So that's, in a sense, what is shifting a lot at this point in time. Now, if we go back to history, um, one of the major changes in the 20th century was, of course, the contraceptive pill, which has given women um, more agency, more responsibility, more medicalization, but also more opportunities to um, make decisions about when they have children and when they don't. And another important technology in the 20th century, also before the 20th century, within the 20th century in a particular way, was menstrual tracking, to see when you are fertile in your particular cycle. So you can either use temperatures, 
but in the, in the 70s and 60s and 80s, the women's health movement also paid attention to getting to know your own body, looking at uh, changes in the cervix, looking at uh, cervical fluid, tracking um, temperature to see where you are in your cycle and to determine whether or not you're fertile at that particular point. And today we have variations of that uh, with fertility apps where people can get feedback from their phones and enter information into their phones about their cycles. And then the phones tells you when it thinks that your fertile window occurs. Now the popularization of these kinds of technologies have of course led to the idea of family planning. And family planning became significant, especially in the 1980s, as, um, uh, a reproductive, as creating a reproductive deadline. So with increased access to abortion, contraception, um, there was this sense that um, there can be a deadline to when you can have children or not. And that became more politicized. So one of my colleagues, Carrie Friese, and um, her uh, colleagues have argued that this concern centered on the notion that the public domain organized around paid labor interferes and competes with women's fertile years. And as the term of the biological clock was adopted in the 1980s, there was a widespread preoccupation with this deadline, especially at the time of Ronald Reagan and the time of a neoconservative movement. Um, so this, this, this concern between, on the one hand, women participating more in wage labor, and on the other hand, the growth of the fertility industry coincided at the same time and um, led to a lot of stories in the media that are continuing about what does it mean um, that we now have to be concerned about a biological clock, or should we be concerned about it or not? And what I found quite um, striking is if you search on Google for male fertility and female fertility, here, female fertility is almost only about graphs going down showing decline. And male fertility shows a lot of other things. It shows babies, sperm, men being worried, being happy. So just to show this, of course there are differences between male and female fertility, but female fertility has become almost synonymous with decline. It's almost defined by the fact that it uh, decreases over time. And I think that's a very striking um, phenomena in our present moment. So um, another thing that happened is with the advent of new reproductive technologies like IVF. Oh yes, and of course when you look at anti-aging, it's a very particular kind of woman, a very particular idea of who should be concerned about aging, which actually coincides a lot with that notion of the biological clock. Now, of course then we had um, IVF starting in the late 70s, but then becoming more popular in the 80s and 90s. And with the introduction of these kind of technologies, a very different conceptualization of what reproduction is and what fertility is became uh, part of our public consciousness. So it displaced the previously common idea that fertility, the sign of fertility could be menstruation and that when you enter menopause, that's a sign of no longer being fertile. But rather, rather than focusing on blood or hormones, the focus was more on the egg. So there's an egg-based notion of fertility. IVF both showed the representation of eggs, but eggs were also the bottleneck in, in IVF treatment because you can inject hormones, um, but you cannot do much about egg quality or egg quantity. That's the bottleneck of treatment. So IVF created possibilities for having children later, and one way in which that, that particularly was through the use of donor eggs. So if you here see um, live births per transfer in an IVF cycle, they go down over time with the years. But if you were to use donor eggs of another younger woman, they stay pretty stable. So the idea is that the um, ability to carry through a pregnancy is not as much related to aging as it is to um, conceive a child. Now, of course, with egg freezing, we get to the next step. It holds the promise of not only later gestation, but also um, later conception. And in this way, it stretches the temporal limits of the female biological clock by enabling uh, later conception and pregnancy. It also holds the promise of um, not only family planning, but also fertility planning. So the idea is that you don't just plan when you have children, but also that you plan when you have the ability to have children. 
So there's a lot of international differences between that. So if we have this idea that the momentum mori of our time for women is very much related to this idea of the biological clock, this idea that you have to be aware of fertility decline from an early age onwards because um, for whatever reason, um, it's very much part of our public discussions around it. Now, as with any reproductive technology, um, the control of reproduction, whether by women, by the state, by markets, by their partners, by uh, broader societies, is highly politicized. And we've seen in response to air freezing lots of different responses. Um, certain entities have rejected the idea of fertility planning and have up upheld, for example, a notion of um, normal reproductive years or natural reproductive years that should not be changed. And there's also been a strong encouragement of fertility planning where people have promoted egg freezing as a way, for example, of a pronatalist uh, approach to encouraging people having children or from a more commercialized approach as a way of making money. So one example is, for example, I'm from the Netherlands. Um, here we see uh, an opinion poll among the Dutch public. And um, in 2009, they wanted to legalize egg freezing, but we had a Christian cabinet at the time that objected to it. So for two years, uh, women could not freeze their eggs in the Netherlands, and instead were going to, to Belgium, for example. Now, there was a discussion about why is it a problem that women would freeze their eggs. And the arguments were not so much it's not ethical or it's not medical, but the main thing, the main blue line we see here was which means women should have children at the time that they are fertile. So this idea of the fertile time as being quite a normative notion that we must uphold, otherwise we go against nature, is, is a strong cultural construct. Um, also in France, for example, you cannot freeze your eggs. Um, the the, the bioethic law is going to be uh, rediscussed this year, so it may change this year, but there are several countries where this is not allowed. Uh, China is another example that's been in the news quite a lot, where um, you have some famous Chinese women traveling to the US to freeze their eggs, um, because in China you can only freeze your eggs if you're married, but not if you're a single woman. Now the opposite, the promotion of egg freezing happens, for example, in Japan, where there are certain areas, for example, the city of Urayashu, where they um, encourage women to freeze their eggs because they're hoping to increase their birth rates. A similar thing happens in Israel, which is the only country in the world that uh, covers egg freezing as um, part of its national health service. Of course, very much linked to a pronatalist and a particular politics of um, demography in Israel. And in the US, you have um, many companies focusing on promoting egg freezing. For example, egg banks, uh, which organizes egg freezing parties so, for example, they organize uh, a party like this, a cocktail party at the Hilton, where they um, target a certain type of woman, um, a woman who has financial means, who has what is work that is recognized as a career, and invites them to come and have a drink and be educated about fertility. And that education it usually encourages um, a freezing procedure afterwards. Of course, you may have heard as well about Apple and, and Facebook offering egg freezing to their employees. Uh, that's organized by a company called Progeny, um, and we'll get back to them later on. Now, the academic response to egg freezing has been, there's been some bioethicists who are in favor of it, primarily to say um, women should have the reproductive autonomy to make decisions about whether or not they want to freeze their eggs. But there's also been a lot of scholarship um, and that makes sense that I've pointed out this may be a technological solution to a social problem. So we should look at the social um, determinants, the social situations that make women have children later and create better opportunities for them to make choices and not be forced into a, a later pregnancy or later conception that requires egg freezing. There's also been more of attention to looking at, well, what about the men? Is it... Um, there's often a lot of attention that we have seen in relation to the biological clock where the focus is on these are career women who do not prioritize motherhood and that's a bad thing. But in fact, when all of the research, most of the research asking the women why did they freeze their eggs, most of them say, I don't have a partner at the moment that I would like to have a family with. So the idea of 
why are the relationship patterns at the moment such that there are a lot of women who would like to have children but don't have a partner? It's another thing to consider. But it doesn't explain everything. So if we look, for example, at the Netherlands, eventually in 2011 it was allowed to freeze their eggs, but there's not a lot of interest. There are about 100 women a year who freeze their eggs, and the numbers are dwindling. That's what we see here. So the opportunity of freezing eggs is, isn't used much. Is that what the title says? Now, in the UK, it's soaring. It's getting much bigger. And also in the US, there's a real increase of egg freezing. So I think it's good to distinguish, on the one hand, between the actual procedure and on the other hand, between the public discourse around it. Because even if it's not done that much, there's a lot of talk about it, and there's a lot of discussion about it. And that, I think, influences all of us and all of our ideas about fertility, whether or not we freeze our eggs. But it is important to know that there are these national differences, and there's also industry differences. So I would like to focus a little bit on um, these different approaches to egg freezing. So let's get I've got too many papers. So some influential companies that promote egg freezing are located in the States. You may be familiar with um, Extend Fertility. They have a big network that they refer their patients to, um, but mostly work online. But why the reason why they're special is because they have um, the, first, the first clinic in the world that only freezes eggs. So this is not a regular IVF clinic, but a clinic where you can only go to freeze eggs, and it's designed very differently. You don't see babies. It's, it's a very different kind of marketing response. Um, another important company is uh, Eggbanks, which is actually part of Progeny. Um, and Eggbanks organizes the egg freezing parties, um, but it's only one small thing of everything that Progeny does. So they also offer um, an online website, wi which has a million visitors every month that describes different fertility treatments. Um, they offer a forum where people talk with each other, an app, um, information online about costs and about education. Um, and they also offer other treatments like embryo selection treatments. So what we see here is that egg freezing becomes part of a much broader enterprise of um, uh, working with fertility. And they work together, for example, with Merck, which is one of the, it's the oldest pharmaceutical company in the world, but also one of the uh, largest, uh, where they work um, to integrate egg freezing with other fertility treatments. Merck is the one that creates the hormones that women inject to uh, stimulate the follicles. So there's an idea of um, companies working together to broaden out what egg freezing might entail. Last company I want to point out is uh, Prelude, which is started by this man called um, Martin Sarowski, and he has, um, is a serial entrepreneur who's created many different companies, and the most famous one may be FON, FON. It's a large um, cloud computing network all across the world, um, and uh, it's part of, uh, it's, it collaborates with uh, British Telecom. So you might know it from, if you look for Wi-Fi somewhere, you see um, BT FON. Well, that's, that's from him. But he also started a new company called Prelude, um, which has gathered 200 million um, dollars investment in order to promote egg freezing among younger um, men and women, because they also do egg uh, sperm freezing. And his idea was that rather than making an infertility company, he wanted to make a fertility company that is a complementary strategy to having a family besides having sex. He says that in the US, people ha are no longer having babies at home, but they have their babies in the clinic. And he wants to create a change that people no longer conceive at home, no longer make babies at home, but make them in the clinic as well, and preferably his clinic. So what they've done is they've um, bought the largest egg freezing bank in the US, which has 40% of the frozen eggs in the US, and um, several large fertility clinic change, uh, chains that they, um, that they promote their marketing through. So a lot of it is online, like just, hey, how's your fertility doing? So the idea of Thinking about fertility throughout the lifetime is an important thing. So one important part of what is happening is that there is a pedagogical turn. There is an emphasis on education as a way of, um, as it were, as a benevolent strategy of letting women know how they can understand whether they are fertile or not. 
Um, but this education is focused a lot on constant fertility decline, which may be counteracted with egg freezing. And it sets up a careful dynamic between knowing and not knowing. So you learn more about population statistics, but you don't know how you relate to it yourself. Um, and then one way to resolve that unknowing and the tension that arises from that unknowing is fertility testing. Fertility testing is, um, is becoming more popular. Um, many of the clinics in the UK will offer what's called a fertility MOT, so you can occasionally check whether you're fertile or not. Um, and it creates a particular understanding of fertility as something that uh, you can only access through um, a, a medical, uh, yeah, for example, medical test. So the question then becomes not only when do you have children, but also when, if at all, do you freeze your eggs? And we see, for example, Extend Fertility says, um, we won't be charging you a fee for this test until you decide to freeze. So it's not even if you decide to freeze, but until you decide to freeze. Now, the thing with the fertility test is that it becomes an individualized indication. So it's something different from um, having a general population information because it becomes something about you specifically. It also sets up a familiarity with going to a fertility clinic and it allows or puts people in the position of the patient, even if they have no particular symptoms. And this then technologizes fertility and creates new uh, dependencies. The thing with the fertility test is that whatever the outcome is, it can be an indication for egg freezing. So if you learn that your eggs or sperm aren't great, let's freeze them now. That's a good indication because it means that you'll have the best eggs um, that you could have if you freeze them now. Um, if they're doing not so great, then now is a good time to freeze them before it's too late. And if it turns out that you don't have any eggs at all, then they have some donor eggs for you. So there is a sense that an egg test can automatically provide a very personalized indication for treatment. Now this, of course, becomes part of a logic of investing. It's a very neoliberal sense of um, you are your own entrepreneur to invest in your own future. And then eggs become a way of investing in your future. So you have to then make a consideration of how many eggs do you need. Because you can freeze your eggs once, but there's only a 4% chance for each egg that it becomes a baby. Um, so a lot of the times there's an advice that maybe you should freeze, extent fertility says 12, um, the largest fertility clinic in this country says 20, some others say have 30, it also depends on what age you are, how many eggs you would need. So that means not just doing one cycle, but doing several cycles in order to meet the right amount of eggs in order to um, potentially have a child one time in the future. Um, this is from CARE, the largest fertility clinic in the UK, and they have a program called Egg Safe, where you can have, um, you pay one fee, and then they guarantee you will have 20 eggs, or at least you can have as many cycles until you get to 20. So there's a new navigation between eggs as a kind of currency of fertility, the time that you've got as your age, and the monetary value that's attached to all these treatments. And so there's a different logic, a different calculus of fertility that's part of that. You can either um, just pay, pay as a plan. So to see your continued fertility as a plan that you opt into, and you pay every month, and it means that you can, um, um, yeah, that you can have ongoing investment in your continued fertility. You could pay per cycle, and then you get a discount for every next cycle that you want, or you can pay for a certain guaranteed amount of eggs and um, uh, organize it that way. Now, of course, this calculus of fertility um, creates a situation that has a lot of people potentially freezing their eggs, but it's very expensive. And so it is a very uh, differential, or what's also called stratified reproductive technology that only, appeal, only is marketed at certain people, but only can be afforded by certain people. In order to make it more of a broader appeal, there are more um, fertility loan companies being set up in the last couple of years. Um, so you can have a loan specifically for how many eggs you would want or how many cycles you would want. Now the thing of that happens here, so this is the fertility loan company in this country, which also has this person called Michael Levy. And he is also the president of the largest fertility clinic in the US. So we see here that that 
move towards having more fertility loans and more fertility financing is part of um, the same people who are also giving the treatments themselves. So there's a real potential for conflict there. So we see here that he's one of the shareholders. And that brings us to the idea that this is not only about women investing in their own eggs, but also the investment in the companies that do egg freezing. So we see a, a growth, strong growth in the fertility industry going up to about uh, 20 billion by 2020. Um, and a large reason for that growth, or uh, the way in which that growth is marketed to investors, is uh, women may be having children later, so therefore we can get uh, more treatments. But also, through egg freezing and other technologies, we can have more people engaging with fertility treatments, even if they are not necessarily infertile. And also, each individual cycle can become longer if we introduce more technologies in each uh, IVF treatment. But we'll get to that later. I already mentioned the um, investments by employers who offer fertility treatment and egg freezing fertility treatment to their employees. It's sort of beginning to happen in the UK, but it's a big thing in the US. So now we have 20% um, of Fortune 500 companies offer egg freezing to their employees. And the logic that progeny describes to the people, um, to the people who are these companies, is they say, if you offer egg freezing, then women will likely not have multiple births. Because if you normally do IVF, there's a, um, an opportunity for people to choose to put in more embryos into the womb than just one so that they have a higher success rate. But that leads to more costs when those women give birth and there are um, costs associated with multiples. So the way in which egg freezing is sold is um, encourage your employees not to do multiple, egg trans uh, multiple embryo transfer by having them freeze their eggs early and by having them um, uh, think about this at an earlier stage. The reason why, um, in part, why it's become so popular among um, companies in the US is that there's a merger between Progeny, which offers the fertility benefits, and Mercer, which is the largest HR consultancy company in the world, uh, worth, I think, about four billion. And so they collaborate in order to um, promote these kinds of benefits um, to large companies. Now, as I mentioned, it's not only about egg freezing, because as soon as you're part of a fertility benefit, there is a range of procedures that is part of the benefit. So you can keep that in mind. Um, so usually there's a kind of consolidation that each step of the reproductive process is another step that you can participate in. Now, of course, we get also to the point where you saw those eggs. Um, and that may be... Um, a positive or a negative experience. Uh, so for example, one of the people I look at in my research found that after seven years, it turned out that none of her eggs survived the freezing procedure, even though she had counted on it. Um, the most famous website and most famous woman who, who froze her eggs found that when she thawed them, um, she only had one embryo at the end of it. And then that embryo created a chemical pregnancy which means that you get a hormonal shift, but it didn't um, result in a continuing pregnancy. So she experienced a lot of grief around it. Oh, I actually threw this away when I shouldn't. So the thing is that um, there is also a possibility for other women that they get a baby in the end and that it works the way they intended to. So both are possible, but just as it is the case with IVF, um, it's not a necessarily very successful technology. There's oftentimes, uh, most of the times it fails, and sometimes it works. So it depends on what people uh, think it's worth to try that. Another thing is that um, not only could you then conceive later in life, but you could also conceive after you've died. So there's a couple of cases of women who have frozen their eggs and then died and left their eggs to, say, their parents or their partners and asked for them to have um, children with those eggs. So it creates a lot of new um, organizations of what it means to be fertile and how long you can be fertile. So when we go back to this, I think we can conclude that egg freezing doesn't only offer a chance of birthing, but also conceiving later in life, um, which implicates uniquely younger women, but also implicates older women who may find that um, they lose their fertility several times because they not only lose it in their bodies, but also in the eggs that may not work. But it also creates the possibility to have children later. 
So combined with the possibility of egg freezing produces new modes of being fertile, as fertility, infertility may be lived prior to the end of its, um, to the end of the reproductive lifespan, and the onset of age-related infertility need not signal the end of being able to have uh, genetically related children. And so this is creating a situation that I call the post-fertile condition in which we no longer can really make a very strong distinction between when people are fertile or infertile or when people uh, can be treated for, for fertility and infertility. Post-fertility denotes the ambiguously fertile and infertile states that emerge when the possibility of egg freezing reconfigures the temporal logic of reproductive aging. And it doesn't mean that the categories of fertility and infertility are no longer relevant, but it's precisely because fertility and infertility are mobilized by so many personal, political, and commercial ends that it is important to consider how these categories may be rethought when egg freezing is introduced and suggests that we may be infertile younger and that we may stay fertile later. And with these new possibilities, there are new anxieties, new responsibilities, and it makes fertility a very precarious thing. So as I'm working on this, I'm thinking, is there a different way that I could think about my own fertility that would be more affirmative and a more positive imagining of my body that is not governed only by decline and loss and scarcity and dependency on biomedical treatments? And can I think of my own aging process as not only as loss, but as something that accumulates, as something that is worthwhile? And can I have a more enthusiastic openness to the many different futures that may be ahead, that may be reproductive and that may be non-reproductive? So in thinking about this, I, um, I'm currently writing a book about this, and I open it with this paragraph as an antidote um, to this way of thinking about fertility. And... Um, after this, I'd like to open it up to the audience to reflect on our own embodiments, but also our excitements and our concerns about these developments. When I imagine my eggs, I think of them as gray and shiny, like slippery helium balloons clustering in the thousands within organs lit up and awake. I think of eggs enfleshed in follicular cavities, folding again and again into a sponge of cells in yellow bodies, pulsating patiently, with only an occasional burst, membrane breaking at the, touch of an, at the touch of an engorged fimbriae, fallopian fingers brushing the ovarian skin. After stories and statistics, after computer animations and camera registrations of organs shining against surgical light, my eggs become palpable within two pulsing opals, shielded by hip bones, roused with embodied symbolism, hypnagogic, I dream them into being, a fiction of the body. Thank you. So thank you for your attention. Let's let's have a conversation. And I just want to say at the start that I think there's a lot of judgment of women doing reproductive things, making reproductive choices one way or another, and I'm not interested in um, perpetuating that. So while I may sound quite critical of egg freezing, um, I also think it's a very valid option, and I can understand how somebody, maybe even myself, would do that. And I also understand how somebody may choose not to do that. But I want to focus my understanding of it more on the broader structural issues than on the particular moral ideas about women who make one choice or another. Yes. Great. Thanks for that great talk. Um, I was wondering, how concerned are you that by taking these employee insurance uh, programs, taking the money for that, that you're actually not taking control of your own fertility, you're actually giving control of your fertility to corporations and how that might affect the issues around rights to have uh, fertility within sort of defined sort of normal range. And then additionally, do you think it will impact on social mobility of women because the poorer women won't be able to undertake this but the rich will? What kind of social mobility do you mean? I just, I just mean just the ability to, you know, there's a sort of key period, perhaps in your late 20s and your yeah. early 30s, where people are thrusting at work and right, right, big right, companies. Yeah. And a company might say, no, we can postpone this. You don't need to, you know, you don't need to have a baby, whereas your male counterparts will. Yeah. And, but poor, poorer women are in different jobs. 
may feel like they have to have children at that time in their life, which is actually considered disruptive for their careers, where, whereas a, a rich person, a rich woman wouldn't. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think there will be a lot of people in the audience who have responses to that too, but um, there's been a lot of critique of, um, of precisely those benefits for the reasons that you point out, because there is an implicit suggestion that by offering this as a company, you could say it's indirectly coercive to say that you no longer can have, say, a financial objection to using this treatment. And it could be a way of showing that you're dedicated to your work by not taking time out. Um, it has to be said, though, that many of these um, egg freezing benefits are being introduced alongside other um, reproductive benefits that include regular IVF, as well as parental leave, as well as uh, what's called a baby bonus that you get extra money in, in case you get a baby. So it's not quite as straightforward that there is only an egg freezing benefit and not support for other choices. But it is very true that those kinds of benefits are only for a certain subsection of um, employees. And while, for example, there may be bene many benefits that may also encourage having children, um, it may still have an implicit message coming from an employee that's dependent on whatever business culture people are working in. So yes, that is definitely a concern that comes up. And the kind of stratification that this reflects um, is something that is really profound. I mean, it's, it's as you see, marketed to, towards a certain type of woman. Um, and yes, there are many other things. There's, there's a, a history of encouraging the reproduction of certain women and not the reproduction of others. Not just women, but of course, men and women both together, yeah. Is there any regulation of egg freezing companies, especially if they have nothing to do with IVF clinics? Is it closely regulated or can uh, you want to It depends on the country you're in. So this country has um, the world's first comprehensive um, IVF or fertility treatment regulation. So we have something called the HFEA here, which is the um, Human Fertilization and Embryology Authority, which uh, licenses all the clinics that can do IVF, so that includes um, that can do egg freezing. Um, there is a regulation in this country that you can only freeze your eggs for 10 years, which is now um, uh, seen as a concern, and I'm also part of a group that is trying to change that, um, because it is a problem if you were to freeze your eggs, say, at 30 years old, that they would be destroyed by when you are 40, and you may want to use them after you're 40, for example. So um, there are some uh, fairly obsolete rules around uh, preserving eggs, um, but there are a lot of rules around um, what kind of health and safety standards a clinic should have in order to freeze the eggs, yes. I don't know if that's the kind of regulation you meant. Yeah, I, I wonder if you meant that. Yes. Oh, yes. Okay, so maybe I need to clarify that. There is a difference between the clinic where women get treatment <coughs> and sometimes, for example, extend fertility or prelude they are, as it were, online platforms that have networks with affiliate clinics. So you pay um, the central company and that gives you, as it were, a voucher to go to a clinic and to use that treatment. So it doesn't go out of the clinic completely, but you'd no longer necessarily work with the clinic as your point of contact. Hi, thank you, that was really interesting. Um, I was just wondering, um, I know that there seems to be very few babies in this country that have been born from frozen eggs compared to frozen embryos. And what do we know about the implications for children that are born from frozen eggs medically? Yeah, so we know little about it because there aren't many, as you say, and the ones that have been born are not that old yet. And it's the case with all of IVF, in fact, because um, Louise Brown is turning 40 this summer. Um, and it looks like she's healthy, she's had children, um, but who knows, there may be something that happens when IVF children get older. It doesn't look like there is, um, and it, they, they generally look healthy, although it does look like um, boys that are born from ICSI have a higher chance of also having um, uh, fertility problems if their fathers had it too, um, because ICSI is a way to counteract or um, circumvent um, sperm that doesn't have enough counts or is not motile enough. So then you inject the sperm right into the egg, so that bypasses a natural selection process there. Um, about egg freezing, there are, for example, in the Netherlands, all the children who are born are monitored long term. 
but in the US there is not such a systematic follow-up of the children who are born from that. So even if there is something, you do need the structures that stay in touch for several years or several decades. And um, that's where you get to the tension that we see happening here, which is, I think is symptomatic of as well, is the shift uh, in research from government funding to private funding. And the different kinds of um, research that's being uh, funded through in that way and the different kinds of research that people would be interested in with different re uh, funding streams. Um, so, so we'll see whether, uh, it, it looks like the children are healthy, the ones that are born do not have more um, defects at birth than would be expected, um, but it's very hard to say for sure until they have actually grown up and led full lives and died. By the way, it's easier to freeze embryos than eggs. Uh, embryos have been frozen for decades because they have smaller cells, and eggs have big cells with lots of water in, so that creates um, ice crystals. And those ice crystals mess up the structure of the egg, and therefore they can't fertilize anymore. So only in recent years they found a way to um, make them survive the freezing and thawing procedure. Hi. Um, just a little bit further on, really, from the question that's just been asked. In terms of um, the, the social and emotional impact on children, I appreciate that this, this development is relatively new, mm -hmm. um, but we, we are aware of children who, who are born to older parents through fertility treatment uh, over time. And I'm just wondering, are you able to put me in, uh, point me in the direction, really, of any studies about the social and emotional impact on children born to um, older women or older parents? Yes. So um, at Cambridge, there's another research center, that's the Center uh, for Family Research, which looks specifically at the outcomes of different types of families, because uh, what a family is has changed a lot in the last couple of decades. So they do research into older parenthood, as well as um, trans families, um, non-heterosexual families, and so on. And um, the research that I know from older parents is that uh, it turns out that the well-being of children is very good, and that uh, the especially the older parents uh, tend to spend and have more intensive parenting strategies. So they tend to be uh, spending a lot of time, a lot of focus, a lot of attention um, to these children. So there's no indication that having children later would not be beneficial for children unless you go, say, really old, uh, 60s, 70s, things like that. But those are exceptions. Um, there is, as far as I know, no indication that um, children of uh, relatively older parents have any negative effects. Yeah. And I can, if you give me your email, I can send you some uh, specific studies. I don't have them right here with me. Hi, Hello. thank you. One of the prohibitions to, to egg freezing would be the fact that you don't want to rely on it. It's a false insurance. But are the rates of success, can you see an increase in that? Um, and together with that, the cost of doing it, both at the freezing point at, and when you then try and conceive later, do you think that as the success of it increases, so will the cost go down? Because it won't be like these specialist clinics who can say they're much better and thus can charge a lot more. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, I think the costs are already coming down quite a bit because um, in the last couple of years in the US, freezing eggs per cycle would be between 10,000 and 15,000. And that is coming down quite a lot through these economy of scale projects that I've been pointing out um, that work with large uh, groups of people and therefore can make it um, cheaper. So you have, you can now do cycles for 5,000 instead of 10,000 before. Um, in this country, it's, it's cheaper. I think it's around um, about 5,000 for um, a cycle. Because the thing is, you, you pay for the cycle, the, the treatment itself, but you also pay for the hormones, and the hormones can be several thousand as well. So it, you, you always have to think about those two things together. Um, it could be the case that if it becomes very popular, that um, it, it will become cheaper. Um, what I know from my friends who work at fertility clinics, they're the people, the embryologists who are working with precisely getting to the technique right, are quite optimistic that they can get the success rates higher over time as they get through trial and error, um, better results. Um, we see now that there are just so few numbers at the moment of how many children actually get born. It's just several dozens a year because we find that a lot of women freeze their eggs, but not that many return 
to, to thaw them. And that may be because they turn out that they can have children in other ways. They may no longer want children. They may get a partner with children, for whatever reason. Um, so there's not that many women who freeze their eggs. Those that do, there's only a few that come back. And from those that come back, there's only a few that actually resort, result in a, in a live birth. So we're talking about not statistically significant numbers at this point. Um, so worldwide, there's maybe a couple of hundred um, frozen egg babies. Thank you. I was ask a question following on from the uh, regulation. Um, I, I found the marketing you showed made me feel very queasy uh -huh. because it's clearly trying to prey on people's fears and insecurities. So do you think the regulation is strong enough about how this um, procedure is, um, is marketed? And a follow-on from that, you know, obviously people are being asked to invest quite a lot of money. These are private companies, and there's always a possibility that these companies will go bust in the future. And I can see people being faced with a decision and say, well, either you're going to lose your eggs because the facility where it's being stored is being closed down, um, or, or, you, or you will you know, have to pay money to, to look after them. Do you think that um, there needs to be much stronger regulation in this area to avoid that? Yes, I think that's a big gap in the regulation that we have, which is really focused on the medical side of things. Um, I'm talking about the UK regulation because I know most about it. Um, the regulation is, is very much focused on the health and safety, the technical aspects, but not so much on uh, the social, the commercial. Um, there are regulations, for example, of how much you can pay an egg donor, which, which has gone up now to 750 pounds, but there's no regulations of, um, and that is the reason that's being uh, capped, is because there is a sense that in the UK, the HSEA or the, or the government doesn't want to financially induce women to uh, donate their eggs. But there is no cap on the financial inducement of private entities to induce women to either donate their eggs or freeze their eggs. And I think that discrepancy between the idea that individual citizens can be financially induced but private companies cannot creates a problem because there are many ways of inducing people to do things that are not necessarily directly giving them money. And so that's about egg donation, but I think with egg freezing something similar happens. What the HFEA is doing now is um, they provide more educational material on their own website as a, a more neutral um, counterbalance. And they also provide what is now called a traffic light system where they say whether there's actually proof that a treatment works. Because something that we haven't talked about is that when you do an IVF treatment, there are treatments called add-on treatments. So you can add an extra treatment onto it that may increase the success rate. Um, but that could work or could not work. And different clinics say different things about that. So the HFEA is trying to be, as it were, a control of knowledge uh, and give more neutral information about it. I think it would be a very good idea to have a discussion about um, to what extent marketing, medical marketing, is allowed here, because there is regulation of that more generally for medical treatment in this country, but it doesn't seem to apply that much to the facility industry. And that's, and then I'll stop, but I think the facility industry is interesting in that respect, because it's one of the few privatized health um, industries in this country that are as privatized compared to others, so it could be a way of looking more broadly at the privatization of healthcare. Hello, thank you for that great um, talk. Um, we've heard about the financial cost and the human cost. Um, I would just like to ask you to share really briefly the hidden cost on our animal friends of mm. this, uh, all these procedures and this treatment. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, Obviously, almost all medical treatments have um, gone through animal testing. Um, IVF itself has been developed first on rabbits and mice, obviously. Um, there are, yeah, there, there's a lot of medical testing that happens on animals that's related to fertility treatment. One thing that I would point to, I don't know, I don't think this happens in fertility treatment in a clinical sense. But what happens a lot in tissue culture is that the most um, commonly used substance is called FBS, and that's called fetal bovine serum. And it's um, a serum that has, a serum is basically when you have blood and you take out the blood cells, what's left over is serum. And that contains growth factors. And that's commonly used to do any kind of tissue culturing, so growing cells in, in culture. I don't think this is used in IVF treatment, but it is used in 
uh, research that has related uh, is related to fertility treatment, and that's taken out of the um, hearts of unborn calves. So if a cow is brought to the slaughterhouse and it turns out that she's pregnant, her uterus is cut out and brought to another part of the abattoir, and then they cut open the uterus, which is no longer in the cow, and the calves that are born that way, or I don't know if you can call it birth, um, if they are within the last three months of gestation, there is a hollow needle that's punctured through their ribs, and, it's being s and then they suck the blood out of the beating heart. And that is the blood that's used for um, fetal bovine serum, which is another million-dollar industry, which is used by almost all uh, cell culturing labs across the world. And oftentimes, a lot of my friends who work in these labs don't know where that comes from. Um, and it, it just looks like, oh, yeah, that's another pot I have here. But it's good to know, to be aware of um, the kind of suffering that is underlying that, especially because these calves are anesthetized, and that's the way that they die, by having their blood sucked out. But they still have to have a beating heart, otherwise they can't harvest enough blood. Um, I think part of the... Uh, some of my ethicist friends are working on that, but it's very hard to get access to it. And it's also hard whether these calves should be classified as their own individual animals or whether it's a byproduct of the cow that was just slaughtered. <laughs> That's a bit of a downer to end with, isn't it? <laughs> it's important to know. I mean, it's, we are so implicated in the suffering of so many. And um, it, thank you for calling attention to that. Yes. Oh, could you just wait for the microphone because it's being recorded? Thank you. Um, you said in England that the um, eggs can only be frozen for 10 years. What happens, because I understand they freeze eggs of young people that are going through cancer treatment. Yes. Um, obviously, they're perhaps not going to need them for, ten for yes. more than 10 years if they're like 17, 18 when these eggs and sperm are frozen. Yeah. So is there an extra, um, do they get dispensation to freeze them for longer? Or is it still 10 years and that's it? Uh, for sperm, you can freeze them for 55 years. Oh right. But eggs is only 10 years. Um, so that's why we're trying to change the law now, because it's not fair. <laughs> it's not the same. Um, I don't know if there's special compensation for cancer patients. Um, it's worth looking into. But I think generally, whatever indication you have, you also have a lot of young trans people who freeze their eggs if they want to use testosterone or want to um, get gender reassignment surgery that would um, limit their fertility, but they would like to have the possibility of having genetically related children later on in life. Um, so there's another group of younger people who are um, freezing their eggs for that reason. So there's, it's really um, a good idea to uh, change that. And um, it's only just now coming up because the first, I mean the first egg freezing happened later, uh, earlier on, but the time when you sort of got more than a dozen people a year was uh, around 10 years ago. So now we're coming up to the first women who've had their eggs frozen and maybe don't want to have them uh, destroyed. Their options would be to um, export those eggs to other countries where they can um, freeze them longer and still use them. But it is a very cumbersome thing to do, which has its own risks to those cells. Um, in the Netherlands, you have the opposite thing there. Until two years ago, you could only use them up until 45 years of age. So the women who were 45 could then move their eggs, say, to the UK and use them when they were 46. So you see a lot of movement of cells and of people to try and circumvent all these national regulations, which are quite uh, idiosyncratic. And, um, one last thing is that with egg freezing, you also get the mobility of eggs, not just of people. So there's quite a lot of fertility tourism in the world. But now you can freeze your eggs, they become mobile. So you can have egg donation across different countries. So certain egg banks are really focused on um, egg donation to other countries as well. I think we have to wrap up. Is there one person who has something bubbling in their belly that they really would like to share? Because I know sometimes when I'm in the audience, they're like, oh, I want to say something, but I'm not sure. Um, this is the last chance. Is there something you want to share with the group? Yes, go ahead. So I, I thought it was very interesting. It's not something I've thought about or experienced at all, but I am horrified um, by the fact that in the same manner that elder care is becoming an, inv an, an international investment opportunity, mm -hmm. the whole monetization 
and that it's a um, it's a real first world thing, mm -hmm. and it's not where I would put world resource priorities. Yes. So that's not really a question. No, no. But, but that's just you a for thought. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a very important question more broadly how we organize our, our public services or our public responsibilities as a society. And we see this movement happening. So um, it's something we can reflect on as a group what, what we can do um, to counteract that. Thank you very much, all of you, for your attention and your kindness. <laughs>